Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will discuss how the regicide of Walid II led to the breakdown of order within the Ummah. Predictably, the tribal feud had a lot to do with it, but there were other sources of conflict as well, like personal vendettas, ambitious Umayyads, carriageites, and more. It was a chaotic and badly documented time, but we'll do our best to get through it sensibly in episode 38, The Third Fitna. There's something that's both difficult and fun about covering these fitness. Or it's difficult until I give up and then it becomes fun. What I'm trying to say is that there is a palpable difference in how our sources discuss times of great civil conflict. In quieter times, most narrations we find are boring monologues with some guy droning on and on about something he had heard. During a fitna, however, these stories are so much more practiced. They're interesting action-filled, and have far fewer loose threads or pointless tangents. I usually have a difficult time trying to divine what, quote, really happened from all this fine-tuned storytelling. Then I give up and start the more enjoyable process of critiquing all the retellings I don't like before presenting you with the one I do. Unfortunately, this tried method of mine won't be enough today, as it's an especially messy fitna to retell. A part of me is tempted to just skip over most of it, because by the time it wraps up, only a tiny minority of all its protagonists will still be alive and influential. But since we're at this closing chapter of the Umayyad dynasty, I thought we might as well take our time, despite how irrelevant many of these developments are for the future of the Caliphate. So just in case the mayhem from our previous episode wasn't memorable enough, we last left the Ummah pledging to a new caliph in Damascus while the head of his predecessor was impaled on a pike outside. It's difficult to give Yazid III the treatment new caliphs usually get on this show, because we don't really know that much about him. He didn't come up at all before this unfortunate business with his cousin, and we can't be sure about anything after that, because it's all solidly fitna territory. Some sources insist Yazid was a devout man, while others make him out to be a prideful and naive one. All I can offer is his age, which was close to Walid's, meaning Yazid was born halfway through his father's caliphate and was in his mid-thirties when he usurped his cousin's throne. Another novelty about him is that he was the first caliph with a non-Arab mother, having been born to a Persian concubine. His mother was said to have been of royal descent, but that's a pretty common claim for members of prominent harems like the caliphs. Nevertheless, none of this embarrassed Yazid, who often used a line of poetry to boast about his mixed lineage, and it went, quote, I am a son of Kosros and a son of Marwan. One sire is Caesar, the other Hagan. That's pretty much everything we know about Yazid, so let's get started with his reign. We're told that Yazid III immediately picked two men to succeed him. The first was a brother of his named Ibrahim, and the second a cousin, Abdul Aziz ibn al-Hajjaj ibn Abdul Malik. He wasn't a son of any of the previous caliphs, but he was useful in war, and so it is telling that the caliph felt he needed Abdul Aziz enough to name him in the line of succession, especially since he had plenty of other sons and brothers to pick from. 
April 744 was when the coup took place, when Qahtani forces took Damascus and killed Walid II near Palmyra. Abdulaziz was there, and he is said to have played a leading role, one of the few Umayyad names in a sea of Qahtani loyalists like Mansur al-Kalbi and Yazid ibn Khalid al-Qasri. So that probably has a lot to do with how Abdulaziz earned his spot in line. Staying in Syria, that same April, the Adnani tribes living in its north heard about what had taken place in Damascus and were predictably infuriated by the news. The army in Homs rebelled by refusing to pledge, and so the caliph sent his Adnani brother, Abbas ibn al-Walid, to reason with them. Abbas had always been popular there, so it wasn't a bad idea. He was the last of his brothers to turn against Walid II because of his strong relationships with the Adnanis. Anyway, he got no special treatment, and when the people of Homs heard him trying to justify his brother's power grab, they flew into a rage, and a mob burned down his house and took some of his family prisoner, though Abbas himself made it back to the caliph's court. Some accounts, the ones which insist on the piety of Yazid III, say that the caliph sent messengers to the rebels, telling them that he was only trying to adhere to the prophet's teachings by holding a shura or election council, one he hoped their elders would attend in order to decide the ummah's next caliph. This, of course, sounds very peaceable and makes no sense at all as it ignores the fact that Yazid had already been pledged to, but it's there, so whatever. Their reply was that the only caliph they recognized were Walid II's successors, who I remind you were his 11- and 9-year-old sons, both of whom were now prisoners of their uncle Yazid. This was an insult to the caliph, and so he sent an army led by Abdul Aziz to subdue them. Around that same time, Sulaiman ibn Hisham was let out of his prison in Amman. I misspoke when I said that Walid had incarcerated the son of the previous caliph in Oman. Being at the southern outskirts of the caliphate, Oman was way out in the Karajite boondocks. Amman, in greater Syria, was securely within the caliph's authority. Anyway, Suleiman was happy to pledge his allegiance to the new caliph, who promptly wed his sister to bring the families closer together. After what must have been a short ceremony, Suleiman led a number of Qahtani troops to support Abdulaziz's forces against the Adnanis from Homs. The leader of that uprising was this guy named Marwan, and he tried to talk the Adnanis out of it. His advice was for them to try and treat with the new caliph, saying that there was no end to the support the Umayyads could draw upon, so it was pointless to oppose them. Hearing this, his supporters mutinied in rage, killed him, and championed an Umayyad known as al-Sufyani, because that's the part of the clan he descended from. The change of leadership wasn't effective in any way. Suleiman and Abdul Aziz still had no problems defeating the Adnani rebels, and they took al-Sufyani into captivity since he was still an Umayyad. When all was said and done, the rebels were forced to pledge their allegiance to the caliph. The uprising in Homs wasn't an isolated incident, it was just the largest and best documented such event. Also, it had an Umayyad at its head, which counted for a lot as far as legitimacy went. Wherever there were Adnanis, there was the potential for trouble, and we hear similar stories set in other parts of greater Syria. The real strongholds of Adnani tribes were the northern provinces of Jazira, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. These lands were governed by Marwan ibn Muhammad ibn Marwan, the decorated Umayyad commander who had vanquished the Khazars less than a decade earlier and had protected the Ummah's north ever since. Marwan was thus by far the most prominent Umayyad associated with the Adnani alliance. When he heard about the coup in April, he made a show of opposition. He first sent a son down to Harran to quell demonstrations, then made his own way there to reassure people that everyone was still under his protection. 
Yazid was rightly very worried about his father's cousin. Marwan was older, highly respected, and most importantly, he had plenty of military experience and no shortage of loyal troops. In fact, if you could choose to remember one name from all the ones we've mentioned, Marwan is the one to pick. We're told the caliph quickly and wisely confirmed Marwan in his position for perpetuity, and that afterwards Marwan accepted him, which I'm sure meant he pledged his allegiance, but of course there are accounts which say he never got around to it. Finally, Iraq had too few Adnanis to pose a real threat, and its once omnipotent governor, Yusuf al-Thaqafi, unsuccessfully tried to rally them, but he was thoroughly unpopular and deep in hostile territory. The new caliph appointed his trusty Qahtani partisan Mansur al-Kalbi to the powerful position of governor of Iraq, and Mansur quickly fished Yusuf out of hiding and forwarded him to the caliph's dungeons in Damascus. With that, Yazid had calmed the instantaneous storm of opposition to his coup. It's not like he got everything under control, but he had at least dealt with the most pressing insurrections in his immediate vicinity. In Iraq, the real threat was never the Adnanis to begin with, and the collapse of Umayyad control played into the hands of various Hashemite and Karajite movements. Despite the fact that the coup had freed them from the cruel Yusuf, the Iraqis resented being ruled by the Syrian Mansur al-Kalbi, which is probably why Yazid had him replaced by a different Abdul Aziz, a son of the famously pious Omar II. The move was not effective at endearing the caliphate to the Iraqis, probably a lost cause by this point, and Abdul Aziz went on to face all sorts of opposition. Things seemed precarious for a minute, but Yazid III succeeded in riding out the storm by defeating the Adnanis in Homs and appeasing them in the north. He also stabilized his hold on power by building some new relationships between his family and others within the clan, like those of Sulaiman ibn Hisham and Abdul Aziz ibn al-Hajjaj. But in September, at the young age of 36 or thereabout, Yazid III passed away of a sudden illness. Plague is always a suspect, but there are accounts which make it sound like a stroke, and others that swear his brother and next in line had poisoned him. Yazid III reigned for a little under six months, and with his death came the end of the fragile peace he had just cobbled together. We know even less about his successor Ibrahim, and we'll just have to assume he was a little younger than Yazid, so mid-thirties still works. Ibrahim ibn al-Walid was pledged to right after his brother's death, and he immediately faced the very same challenges. Homs rose in Adnani rebellion, the north was clamoring for Marwan to do something about all the instability down in Damascus, and anti-Umayyad groups in Iraq felt emboldened enough to stage their own uprisings. Ibrahim didn't see why he should deviate from his brother's playbook, and he sent Abdul Aziz to deal with the rebels in northern Syria. Homs was besieged, or maybe it wasn't, it's not really clear, but some anti-Adnani mobilization didn't sit well with the governor of the north, Marwan ibn Muhammad. He was already being goaded by his closest Adnani allies, families he had built strong marriage ties with, into standing up to his cousin's son in Damascus. It was a pretty easy argument to make. After all, nobody could match Marwan's armies in battle. All he had to do was get over the whole treason angle. The excuse Marwan settled on was the same Adnani line towed since the April coup, that he believed the righteous heirs to the caliphate were the young sons of Wadid II. He put together an army estimated as large as 80,000 and rode south to demand that they be restored to power. 
He easily broke the siege of Homs, if it was really there. And Ibrahim ordered Suleyman bin Hisham and Abdul Aziz ibn al-Hajjaj to prepare to defend the capital. The battle between Marwan's forces and theirs happened along a river on the road from Ba'labak to Damascus, and it was a big one. Suleyman had the larger army, some say up to 120,000, and despite his own extensive experience fighting against the Byzantines, he didn't really stand much of a chance against the militarily brilliant Marwan. We're told Marwan ordered some of his men to cut down trees from a nearby mountain and use them to build secret bridges out of sight. Routing the caliph's larger army was a straightforward affair after Marwan's forces successfully ambushed them from behind, and the commanders rode back to Damascus. Once they arrived, together with Yazid, a son of Khalid al-Qasri, they executed the children of Walid II, the boys whom Marwan was calling for to be restored to the throne. They also put the hated Yusuf al-Thaqafi to death, and there are more than a few narrations admiring the poetic justice of how it was none other than Khalid's son who killed Yusuf. I'm not sure if anyone expected Marwan to just turn around now that the kids were dead, but it's not like there was much else they could do. Once they were done with their heroic executions, these men and the Caliph Ibrahim all fled west to Tadmur, or Palmyra. All this happened really fast. Yazid III died in September, Marwan rebelled shortly after, he relieved Homs and or fought Suleyman in October, and by late November, Marwan rode into Damascus unopposed, where he was declared Caliph, the fourth and final one of the tumultuous year 744. We should take a minute to catch our breath, but after that we're going to continue our rapid coverage of the third fitna. Originally, I wanted to end this episode here and give Marwan II his own, but the two would have had too much in common, and I'd have to keep referring back to this one in the next, so it's best we go ahead and combine them. Besides, the third fitna is an unusually fluid one. Most agree that its start had to do with Yazid III, either his rise or his death, but its end is less determinate. Some say it ended after Marwan pacified the caliphate in the years following his rise to power, but others don't see any stability until the impending dawn of a new dynasty. So how about a quick refresher on what we know about Marwan II? He was the son of an Umayyad father and a Kurdish mother. Marwan's father, Muhammad ibn Marwan, was Abdul Malik's younger brother, the one who had helped win Armenia and Azerbaijan back for the caliphate after the second fitna, and had been rewarded with the two provinces as his domains. He was Abdul Malik's man on the Adnani side of the rift, so Marwan II's ties with them spanned two generations at least. I say at least because Marwan was a relatively old man at this point, having assumed the role of caliph at the ripe age of 53, so his kids and grandkids were probably also married to a bunch of Adnanis. He had spent most of his life fighting for the caliphate in the north, becoming the region's governor after he upstaged his cousin Maslama ibn Abdul Malik by turning back the Khazars. Marwan wasn't your typical old Umayyad. In fact, you wouldn't be able to tell his age from the stories we read about him. He was a military man through and through, and his tireless presence on the battlefield earned him the nickname Marwan the Ass. I promise it was meant as praise. It just loses everything in translation. After all, donkeys are surprisingly vigorous beasts of burden, and that's the quality the wordsmiths were trying to capture with the tag Ass. Marwan's military mentality shone through pretty quickly. He had the troops choose their own commanders, and he faulted his predecessors for the way they had treated the armed forces, 
like branding Yazid III with the nickname Yazid the Lesser because he had reduced the soldiers' pay. But these bits aren't the only examples we'll get for his martial ways. After all, there was plenty of fighting to get through. One obvious source of tension was that a thoroughly Adnani Umayyad had just ousted a thoroughly Qahtani one, so clearly the tribal feud was in full swing. But as we'll soon see, there were plenty of other internal threats for Marwan to deal with, and boy was he the Umayyad for the job. Since he's pretty much a one-man show, we'll mostly cover things chronologically, but be warned that I'm going to be even briefer when it comes to his struggles than I've been in this episode so far. There are just so many names, and everyone just ends up dead. Not to nag you or anything, but this was some of the most unpleasantly confusing reading I've had to endure so far. So much for sharp fitness stories with no wasted words or useless tangents, the whole mess is one long expendable tangent. But again, we're just doing this so that we can follow the Umayyad dynasty all the way to the grave. Let's start at the top. After receiving everyone's pledges of support in Damascus, Marwan had his sons named as his successors, then he left for Harran in the north, where he intended to hold court. Marwan II was very conciliatory towards his clan at this point, and we're told that it wasn't too long before the Umayyads who had run away from him returned and humbly accepted their amnesty, men like the previous caliph, Ibrahim, and Suleiman ibn Hisham. It was a good start, but it wasn't long before the rumblings of discontent were being heard from Syria once again. Of all places, we're told that Homs, the solidly Adnani city, was the first to rebel against the caliph. Some sources say that al-Sufyani, the Umayyad who had been captured by Suleiman a year earlier, had come back to town and fomented rebellion. Others, that it was general discontent at the caliph's abandonment of Syria for the north of the caliphate. I like that second explanation, but whatever it was, the response was swift and punishing. 3,000 dead, 600 of them crucified outside where the city's walls once stood. After that, a town near Damascus pledged to follow the Qahtani agitator Yazid ibn Khalid al-Qasri, the son of the man whose death was the spark which lit the recent explosion in the tribal feud. Yazid tried to take Damascus, but Marwan sent 10,000 to face his feeble band of 400 and was soon forwarded his head back in Homs. There were other similar, mainly Qahtani, uprisings in Syria, but Marwan dealt with them all violently and effectively throughout 745. These campaigns did regain the caliph full control of the province, but they also led to a serious culling of Syrian tribes. We haven't discussed Iraq for a while, so let's turn our attention east. It was this official focus on Syrian events which had encouraged its Karajite and Hashemite groups to organize and protest more openly. They no longer had to worry about a brutal response, neither from their unhinged governor Yusuf nor from Damascus. Marwan sent a commander to take charge of Iraq, but Abdulaziz ibn Omar refused to relinquish his post. Some say Abdulaziz managed to thwart a small rebellion in Kufa, which had been started by a renegade Hashemite, but let's not waste time on small fry. Abdulaziz's real test came at the hands of a Karajite from Jazeera named Dahak. Al-Dahak had started with a following of a few hundred, which snowballed into several thousands as he made his way through Mosul to Kufa. When he got there, he found the governor's forces fighting with Marwan's guy and his posse, but when faced with the Karajites, the two sides united. Al-Dahak's men defeated their forces combined, 
and Abdul Aziz found shelter and safety in the garrison city of Wasit, while Marwan's guy ran back to Harran. So this became Marwan's newest problem, and he first sent Suleyman ibn Hisham to deal with it. Despite their history and recent battle, there is good reason to believe that Marwan would have felt he could trust Suleyman. When Marwan had his children named as his successors, he also wed each of them to a daughter of Hisham, so Suleyman's sisters, making him sort of like his father-in-law. Anyway, Suleyman took his army, but he soon fell prey to some very seductive whispers. Syrian loyalists came out of the woodwork and professed their undying loyalty to him. They reminded him how well they had served his father and cast doubt on the new caliph's commitment to Syria. They promised Suleyman that they could get the whole province to side with him. All he had to do was accept the burden of leadership. And accept it he did. Instead of attacking Iraq, Suleyman took the city of Qinsarin in northern Syria. Marwan was understandably incensed at this betrayal, and he immediately rode out and dealt the rebels a crushing defeat. Nearby Homs had joined this Syrian uprising, led by Suleyman's brother Sa'id, so that's where Marwan went to next. Homs was besieged for ten months before it surrendered to the caliph for the last time. Sa'id was captured and killed, but Suleyman had escaped his defeat in Qinsarin, taking shelter in the only place safely out of Marwan's grasp, his originally intended target, with the Karajite Dahak in Kufa. So once again, the focus on Syria had allowed the problem in Iraq to get much, much worse. Dahak was pushing for everyone to pledge their allegiance to him, and he was declared caliph in Kufa while Marwan was busy besieging Homs. He even forced Abdul Aziz ibn Omar to pledge, which was a big deal because he was an Umayyad. Marwan sent his son Abdullah to stop al-Dahaq after the Karajite began expanding north, taking Mosul and moving into Jazeera. Abdullah failed to stop his advance and was besieged in Nisibis after being routed, but it wasn't too long before Homs fell and Marwan was free to take his army and deal with matters personally. He faced off with al-Dahaq somewhere in Mesopotamia and the Karajite leader died in battle. While this wasn't the end of the Karajite rebellion, let's just rush through the rest of it. Another Karajite led it for a whole year, and Marwan's forces had to fight for every inch of Iraqi soil. Then they had to deal with that same renegade Hashemite from Kufa after he pulled an encore in Persia, but he still never posed too big a threat. He's just a reminder of how deeply pro-Hashemite sentiment ran in the East. A lot of this fighting was handled by Marwan's governor of the province, Yazid ibn Hubayra. Oh, and going back to abridging Karajite movements, there was a gang of Karajites who killed Marwan's governor of Mecca and Medina in 747, and then made a run for Syria before being decimated by its much stronger armies. Finally, in 749, Marwan had to personally lead his forces all the way to Egypt after a rebellion by its Copts had gotten way out of hand. I never dwell on the province, and maybe this is a good time to point out that the caliphate's grip was mainly in and around the canton city of Fustat. Egypt was a rich, expansive land that had many settled communities living outside the caliphate proper. The Copts, nomads, and other settled populations around the Nile Delta, for example, paid tribute to the Ummah but didn't interact with it much further. This air of independence had encouraged rebellions against the caliphate before, but this one in 749 was the first to spiral out of control. This is the war we know the least about, and it seems like Marwan couldn't get anywhere militarily and just ordered some villages be raised. 
It's unclear who is to blame for this failure, or whether failure was even the reason why Marwan turned back to Syria in 750. So those were Marwan's first five to six years in charge. They were chock-full of rebellion, but the caliph succeeded in tamping out all the opposition he encountered. Nobody could stand up to him on the battlefield, and he gives us our only example of a caliph who personally led his armies in war. His methods did deliver results, there's no argument there, but with every rebellion subdued, the ummah got that much weaker. By 750, Umayyad power was so depleted that a new insurgency from the east will succeed where all previous uprisings had failed. Can you guess where it came from? Just like how Iraq's problems metastasized when it was ignored, there's a province that hasn't come up in our history for quite a bit. But one certainly never went there, and the other caliphs of 744 were too absorbed with local events to pick up on the distant danger. It was Khurasan, where the Abbasid Da'wah had recently struck gold with the waning of Umayyad authority. But that's something better left for next time, here on the caliphs the rise and fall of Arab power.